0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Patrick Smith, author of The Land Remembered, has won the 2012 Florida Lifetime Achievement Award for writing. There's not
1: too many writers left in Florida, I don't think, who've been at it as long as I have. My first novel, The River is Home, was published in 1953. We'll explore the
0: complex relationship between native Floridians and European colonists.
2: Your main challenge was going to be controlling the Indians. And that was a main part of, of the entire colonial Spanish America.
0: We'll remember a preservation effort that included a woman standing in front of a bulldozer, that and more ahead on Florida frontiers.
3: His beard may be stubborn. I like a cut over sugar, can you feel? His clothes may be dirty, but the look in his eyes lets you know he won't yield. He's from a breed that has died, but he has survived. The world he once knew is gone. He's an old cracker cowman existing a long way from home. And dirt bikes scream over land that used to be scrub-cow trails. And interstate highways have taken the place of old Mr. Flagler's rails. And condos rise from the land and space shuttles fly. And you
0: don't know how it all passed him by. Patrick Smith has won the 2012 Florida Lifetime Achievement Award for writing. Smith is the author of 10 books, most set in Florida, but it's his 1984 novel, A Land Remembered, that is his best loved work. A fall in late 2009 and other health problems have left Patrick Smith immobile and unable to attend this week's luncheon in his honor at the Governor's Mansion or the evening reception at the Gray Building in Tallahassee. So we're visiting Patrick Smith at his home in Merritt Island to discuss the award, his career and how he's doing.
1: Up and down, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But I still can't get up, you know, and get around.
0: Most popular novels have a year or so of good sales, maybe getting another boost when a paperback version comes out, but Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered has been a bestseller in Florida ever since it was first published in 1984 by Pineapple Press.
1: You know, that's hard to understand sometimes. Every year it gets more and more readers instead of, like you say, stopping. And really gaining with young readers... Most of the schools in Florida now teaching and the young kids, they really like it because they had no idea that Florida was ever like its picture in the land remembered. And another thing they say is, before they read this novel, they never knew what those words, family values, meant, because people today don't live like they did back then, you know, close to each other and it's changed their lives according to what they say. It's been a surprise to me.
0: The novel A Land Remembered follows the fictional McIvey family for more than a century, from their arrival in Florida in 1858 through 1968. The family struggles at first to live off the land, but becomes very successful in the cattle industry. The last generation covered in the book loses connection with the land, selling it off for development.
1: Of course, in the novel, the last of the MacGyvey's, Saul is one who really uh, what do you call it, progress, built all those structures and everything, and came to regret it. So before he died, he gave a lot of land to the state that he preserved forever, his wildlife preserve. So he, he regretted what he had done.
0: No one family experienced everything that the McGivies did, but almost everything in the book did happen to one pioneer family or another. Patrick Smith.
1: Of course, that book is not based on one family. The characters are composites of different families, but it happened, yeah.
0: Many lifelong Floridians and many Florida historians say that if you're only going to read one book about Florida, it should be Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical
4: Society. In fact, it's, it's one of those books that uh, that I often recommend to uh, not only uh, uh, people who've lived in Florida their entire lives, you know, go back generations, but also to uh, people just moving to the state. Uh, oftentimes people will visit the, uh, the library, or they'll come up to me and say, you know, I'm interested in Florida history and uh, can you recommend maybe a primer uh, and I always skip over these you know boring sort of academic surveys of Florida history which are essential you know to learn uh, some real particular aspects of Florida history but uh, I'll always grab a land remembered and say read this first you know and then come back and we can uh, discuss you know from there you know and I can also you know branch out and recommend some more books but uh, but a land remembered is always that that uh, that foundational read that I try and get uh, I try and get people like I said both both young and old uh, Readers to uh, to at least start with you know and then we can uh, uh, it kind of starts that discussion you know and gets people uh, gets people excited at least about about a century of, of Florida history.
0: In addition to being a very popular book among the general public, "A Land Remembered" is a favorite of Florida teachers and students. Ben DiBiase explains why Patrick Smith's novel is particularly useful as a learning tool.
4: Well, in fact, uh, the author Patrick Smith has uh, uh, broken his book into two separate volumes uh, and and. Uh, He's geared both of these volumes. In fact, it's the same text, but what he's done is is broken into two separate stories. Uh, And and that um, effort is geared specifically for students. Uh, The first volume uh, really focuses on the early history, you know, the uh, uh, mid-19th century up through the the 20th century. And then it sort of carries into the 20th century on to uh, the mid-20th century and tackles some of the the issues of of, uh, cattle and citrus growth in in Florida. Uh, But they also provide a great curriculum guide. Um, which not only uh, focused on the, the history of Florida, the, the uh, social studies uh, aspect of, of the book, but also the uh, uh, scientific aspects. And, and uh, they also try and, and look at some of the language arts uh, issues. You know, they try and translate some of the slang terms, you know, and you learn about uh, dialect and, and how language has changed over time uh, in Florida. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great for a young audience sort of to, to draw them in, you know, much like... Um, I would, like I said, I recommend the book for, for anyone just moving to Florida. The same thing for, for a younger reader, people who may not uh, have a whole lot of background in Florida history. Uh, it, it sort of paints a, a vivid picture. You know, it draws a reader in. You know, it gets someone uh, excited about Florida history. And uh, and it's it's very relational. Uh, someone can read this book and then go outside and, and really... Uh, sort of make the connections uh, with with contemporary Florida, uh, and that's I think re- how it really resonates with, with a younger audience. Uh, and it's historical fiction, so it um, you know it, it's rooted in, in historical fact, but it, it's it's a, a great story, you know. And that's what you need. You need a good flowing narrative, something that, that really um, uh, entertains but also uh, educates, you know. Sort of behind the curtain, uh, which uh, which I think this book uh, absolutely uh, does.
0: Patrick Smith has had success with other books, including The River is Home, *Alapata*, and The Beginning. His novel, Angel City, was made into a film starring Paul Winfield, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Ralph Waite. Patrick Smith.
1: It's seven novels altogether, but uh, only one of them really was as popular as The Land Remembers. That was Forever Island. It was. It's been published all over the world.
0: This week, Patrick Smith is being recognized as the winner of the 2012 Florida Lifetime Achievement Award for writing. Oh, I was very pleased
1: with it, any writer would be, you know, to get an award like that. It recognizes your lifetime work as a writer. There's not too many writers left in Florida, I don't think, who've been at it as long as I have. My first novel, The River is Home, was published in 1953. That's 59 years ago. And over the period of time from then to now, I've written a total of 10 books. I know that's not a lot of books, but you know, I did it at the same time I held down a full-time job. And that makes a lot of difference.
0: Patrick Smith is author of the epic Florida novel, A Land Remembered. We spoke at his home in Merritt Island. Oh,
3: Bon myself, he's gone, but the legend lives on. Jake Summerlin and old Sam Keene, beginning and ending of an era now gone. And men like Doc Norman somehow let the bottle get him down. These old farted cowboys are like eagles Tied to the ground And dirt bikes scream over land That used to be scrubbed out trails, And interstate highways Have taken the place Of old Mr. Flagler's race And condos ride from the land and space shuttles fly. And you cracker cowmen don't know how it all passed him by.
0: That was Frank and Ann Thomas performing the song Cracker Cowman. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Markle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to purchase great books like Land Remembered and explore our educational resources. There are still a few seats left for our upcoming celebration of the 30th anniversary of the discovery of the amazing Windover Archaeological Dig on March 31st. Find out about reservations at myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan
5: Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. A
6: year after the founding of St. Augustine in 1565, three Jesuit missionaries arrived in La Florida. Without an experienced navigator, the Jesuits found themselves lost along the Florida coast. When their leader stepped ashore to ask for directions to St. Augustine, he and five of his companions were murdered. The two surviving Jesuits were joined in 1568 by a second group led by their superior, Juan Batista de Segura. But it was not long before the Jesuits became discouraged with their new mission. Baptista de Segura described the Florida peninsula as nothing more than a long pile of sand, full of swamps and rivers, not for the Society of Jesus. After eight Jesuits were murdered near their new mission at Chesapeake Bay, the Order chose not to send more friars. In a 1571 letter to Pedro Menendez de Avilés, the Jesuit general, Francisco de Borja, informed Menendez that the Jesuits had decided to abandon La Florida. The following year, they
5: were gone. University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in
0: Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
7: seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone they paid paradise put up a parking lot (laughs) they took all the trees put them in a tree museum and they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The pay favorite eyes put up parking lot
0: sometimes the fight to preserve historic sites or environmentally important land can take a dramatic turn. Janey Gould has the story of one woman whose preservation efforts included physically blocking a bulldozer.
8: Heathcote Botanical Gardens in Fort Pierce is marking its 25th anniversary this year. The property used to be a plant nursery with a Japanese garden. A landscape architect named Molly Crimmins and her husband Jim owned it. There was no road behind the property, but when the city dug a canal there, the excavated dirt remained. In the mid-1980s, Gloria Moore and others were trying to raise money to buy the property from the Crimmins.
9: Molly Cremins built this Japanese garden actually on the big pile of dirt that was the excavated part out of the canal. Not to pay any attention to the fact that it wasn't her property. Okay? (laughs) Back in those days, nobody paid any attention to that. So when the city went to create a road and pave it, that's where we ran into a problem. And by then, our grant had come through. We were convincing the city and the county that we didn't have enough yet. We needed their help, financial help, to buy the property. The day that this was getting ready to occur with the paving of the road, I worked for twenty years as a bookkeeper for my friend Bud Adams at Adams Ranch and I was there. I had somebody down here call me and say they're out here with the bulldozer, they're starting to knock things down. Rock work of the Japanese garden. I called Laura Baker. She was one of my original ones that helped me form the garden. And I said, Laura, you have to get down there. I'm twenty miles out in the country. I can't get there. To
8: stop the bulldozer?
9: To stop the bulldozer. <laughs> And the city had already told the engineer, do not take very much at all of that part of the Japanese garden. Laura Baker said, Gloria, I can go down there, but I have curlers in my hair. So I said, Laura, I don't care. Go down there and stop the bulldozer. So she came down here, and here comes the bulldozer. Now the engineer's not running the bulldozer, but he's calling the shots. He was pretty livid. Laura said she sat on the rock formation and she looked at him, and she said, You know the city commission told you not to do this and she wouldn't move. She still have the curlers in her hair? Absolutely. And, you know, all these years, I thought I'd made that up. After 25 years, you wonder if what you told was the truth. Laura is the only one of the ones that helped me form the garden that lives out of state. I called her and I said, could you come down? We're celebrating our anniversary.
8: Laura Baker came back for the celebration and confirmed the story.
9: See, the only thing you didn't realize at the time was that I really did have curlers in my hair, and I came down looking like that.
8: So she was engaged in some brinkmanship with the engineer. I guess he blinked
9: first? I guess. They figured they weren't going to run over that woman, so they they might as well stop. The James Smith Bonsai Garden is a new addition at Heathcote. This is huge for us because Jim is known all over the country and actually internationally for his work. I know you've heard the term put you on the map, but it literally will put Heathcote on the map nationally and internationally. So we're very proud of this new section of the garden.
8: It's a dwarf bougainvillea on its side, kind of.
9: It's not dwarf, it's a full size one that they've made look dwarf. There are many styles of bonsai, and this is called a cascade, which means the plant goes down below the bottom of the container itself. Mary
8: Purden and John Cavello were visiting Heathcote to check it out for a possible visit when your relatives are here.
9: We decided to come in here and walk and see if my husband, who can't walk very far, but this is wonderful. There are seats everywhere. And the flowers are blooming and the trees are gorgeous. Plus
8: you're sitting in the new pavilion with a nice breeze.
9: I was thinking, wouldn't this be nice if I had this in my backyard? This is wonderful.
8: When the James Smith Bonesai Garden was dedicated recently, Fort Pierce Mayor Bob Benton presented a key to the city to Gloria Moore. It was in recognition of her 25 years of volunteer service to Heathcote.
0: Janie Gould prepared that report.
7: Don't it always seem to That don't know what you've got till it's gone paradise, put up a Put up a in love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is Florida Frontiers. The pre-Columbian world was a land teeming with highly evolved indigenous groups. What part did Florida's native people play in shaping the colonial campaigns of France and Spain? Bill Dudley talks with a scholar who draws some surprising conclusions from studying the documents of this turbulent period in our state's history.
2: Your main challenge was going to be controlling the Indians. And that was a main part of, of the entire colonial Spanish America.
5: Erin Woodruff is a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt University. A few years ago, she began reading 15th and 16th century Spanish colonial documents, becoming fascinated by the story of Spain's adventure in the New World, beginning with Pedro Menendez and St. Augustine.
2: One of my documents I was reading was the original contract between Pedro Menendez de Abulas and the king. And then that summer, I went to Spain and found many of his letters that he wrote from florida back to the crown and many of them dealt with indians then i continued looking through them the other the other men and soldiers that were there and eventually it became very clear to me that the contact between the indians and the spanish was not simple and that it was very complicated and the indians had a lot of power and there was a lot of negotiation between the Spanish and the Indians, continuously.
5: After Columbus and the failed expeditions of Narvaez and DeSoto, most of the Europeans setting foot on Florida soil were freelance slavers.
2: For example, Juan Ponce de Leon was a slaver, and they would go to uh, the Bahamas Islands, and they did the same thing in Florida. They'd go to the Bahamas Islands, and they would trade with the Indians, and they would gain their trust over a few days, and then they would get them on the boat, basically trick them. And then they would take them back to Española or Cuba, whichever island needed the workers for the gold mines. And literally in one slaving expedition, I believe 12,000 Indians died. They were taken from the Bahamas, I think it was about 15,000, and only 3,000 survived to Española. And this is just because of the conditions that they were put in, because they would go from island to island. And those left on the ship were kept in these pens and they would just die.
5: Then in 1564, the French established a settlement at Fort Caroline, north of present-day Jacksonville. The Spanish saw this as a threat to their shipping lanes to and from South America and the Caribbean. A few days after founding St. Augustine in August 1565, Pedro Menendez set out to eliminate the French problem with some help from a local cacique, or chieftain.
2: They came onto the land, And they were there a couple days before any Indians came out. They came out from the woods. They had a discussion. They exchanged goods. And then he had an ally for a couple months with the cacique Siloy. That was the name of the cacique. He was a Timucua. And he was actually at war with Saturiba, another Timucua cacique, who was allied with the French. Siloy helped the Spanish to find Fort Caroline, showed them the way by land and gave them information on how many men were there. And so Menendez was able to execute his surprise attack by land on the French fort.
5: Menendez letters contain accounts of the ways in which his people attempted to win over the natives.
2: They had to make a deal. They had to make a deal with the cacique and then he would supply workers. The cacique would get, he would get power, weapons from the Spanish. He got their alliance that he was supplied with priests so they would begin a Catholic conversion. He would also get, obviously, trinkets, trading goods, Spanish clothing. For many of the Indians, and especially the caciques, having the Spanish goods was a status symbol, and they could use it against their enemies.
5: The French colony was destroyed, but Menendez's struggles in dealing with the native Floridians were only beginning. By all accounts, they were a tall, impressive race of people who could, at times, be friendly and cooperative, or obstinate, secretive, and violent?
2: I think they were pretty edgy. They were described as warlike, they were strong, they had flaming arrows, and it appears that they would use the Spanish when they needed them. For example, the Siloy cacique, he wanted to use the Spanish against his enemy, Saturiba. However, within a few months, once Saturiba had been defeated, the cacique of Siloy attacked the Spanish because the Spanish were using his people for labor and to get food for their settlement.
5: In the absence of support from bigger crown colonies in Cuba and Mexico, the settlement was often dependent on the chieftains for much of its food supply. The situation was made worse by the Europeans' refusal to eat seafood, which they could have had in abundance.
2: They, they said that, you know, these Indians, they eat these oysters and this fish, and it's disgusting. They w- refused to eat it, which is much of the reason that they starved until they could get their livestock, which the Indians killed often. In protest, they would kill the cows.
5: Aaron Woodruff says the Spaniards were hoping to institute the quasi-feudal encomienda system here, as they had done in Mexico and South America.
2: Menendez did not enslave the Indians. He, of course, wanted to enslave them, but he failed. I mean, his goal was to get encomiendas. And an encomienda is you have a large piece of land and you control. All of the individuals that live on that land, and you extract work from them—labor or tribute or money. It's not exactly slavery, but they were not free. That's what he wanted to do, but he could never do it. He didn't have enough people. There was too much space. The Indians were never cooperative, and he didn't have enough money. Basically, Florida was—it was underfunded, and the Mexicans and Cubans kept failing on sending the supplies and everything that Menendez would have needed.
5: Too often, Spanish ambitions in La Florida were thwarted, not only by shifting political alliances and the warlike posture of their Indian neighbors, but by dissension within their own community.
2: There's constant strife. Constant strife between the Spanish themselves. They had several different rulers. There were arguments between the Spanish in Florida and the Spanish in Cuba. Many people wanted to desert Florida because it was not profitable. There was not gold. The Indians were not being helpful. They could not grant encomiendas, which were these land grants, which would make the Spanish wealthy because the Indians would not cooperate. So you have the settlers there who are basically trapped inside of the garrison at St. Augustine, who aren't making any money. And they were told that Florida was this wealthy place and they would instantly have a fortune. So they want to leave, you know, Menendez, the government's trying to keep them there. Others are exploring, and then there's the Indian issue. So if you leave the garrison, you can be killed, basically, at any moment.
5: Given his preference, Menendez would have moved the entire community up the coast to Santa Elena, his settlement on present-day Paris Island, South Carolina. The Spaniards could never be sure where they stood with the tribes.
2: It just depended upon the year, upon the time, upon the group. For example, the Guale Indians in present-day South Carolina or Georgia, they had a very friendly relationship with the Spanish until the 1590s. They were a constant ally, which is part of the reason why Menendez wanted to move the capital of Florida to Santa Elena. And the crown did not want him to do that because the purpose of Florida for the crown was to be on the Bahamas Channel. To protect the ships.
5: But as time went on, Woodruff says things began to slowly improve for the colonizers.
2: More and more missionaries came. Eventually what happened is many of the Indians either died or left. By the 1600s, you have new groups forming or groups consolidating because there was so much death from disease, so you have a diminishing population. And with a diminishing population, the Spanish were able to get a lot more control.
0: That's scholar Aaron Woodruff. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. To get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report, become a member of the Florida Historical Society by going to myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. You can also like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.